Part three, chapter six of Australia Felix. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Australia Felix by Henry Handel Richardson. Part three, chapter six. In the weeks and months that followed, as he rode from one end of Ballarat to the other, from Uil's swamp in the west as far east as the ranges and gullies of Little Bendigo, it gradually became plain to Mahony that Ned's frothy tales had somebody in them after all. The character of the diggings was changing before his very eyes. Nowadays, except on an outlying muddy flat or in the hands of the retrograde Chinese, tubs, cradles and windlasses were rarely to be met with. Engine-sheds and boiler-houses began to dot the ground. Here and there a tall chimney belched smoke beside a lofty puppet-head or an aerial trolley-line. The richest gutters were found to take their rise below the basaltic deposits. The difficulties and risks of rock-mining had now to be faced, and the capitalists, so long held at bay, at length made free of the field. Large sums of money were being subscribed, and where these proved insufficient the banks stepped into the breach with subsidies on mortgages. The population, in whose veins the gold-fever still burned, plunged by wholesale into the new hazard, and under the wooden verandas of Bridge Street a motley crew of jobbers and brokers came into existence, who would demonstrate to you, a la Ned, how you might reap a fortune from a claim without putting in an hour's work on it, without even knowing where it was. A temptation indeed, but one that did not affect him. Mahony let the reins droop on his horse's neck, and the animal picked its way among the impedimentia of the bush road. It concerned only those who had money to spare. Months, too, must go by before, from even the most promising of these cooperative affairs, any return was to be expected. As for him, there still came days when he had not a five-pound note to his name. It had been a delusion to suppose that in accepting John's offer he was leaving money troubles behind him. Despite Polly's thrift, their improved style of life cost more than he had reckoned. The patients, slow to come, were slower still to discharge their debts. Moreover, he had not guessed how heavily the quarterly payments of interest would weigh on him. With as good as no margin, with the fate of every shilling decided beforehand, the saving up of thirty-odd pounds four times a year was a veritable achievement. He was always in a quake lest he should not be able to get it together. No one suspected what near shaves he had, not even Polly. The last time hardly bore thinking about. At the eleventh hour he had unexpectedly found himself several pounds short— he did not close an eye all night, and got up in the morning as though going for his own execution. Then fortune favoured him. A well-to-do butcher, his hearty, "'What'll yours be?' at the nearest public-house waved aside, had settled his bill off-hand. Mahony could still feel the sudden lift of the black fog-cloud that had enveloped him, the sense of bodily exhaustion that had succeeded to the intolerable mental strain. For the coming quarter-day he was better prepared— if that was, nothing out of the way happened. Of late he had been haunted by the fear of illness. The long hours in the saddle did not suit him. He ought to have a buggy and a second horse. But there could be no question of it in the meantime, or of a great deal else besides. He wanted to buy Polly a piano, for instance. All her friends had pianos, and she played and sang very prettily. She needed more dresses and bonnets, too, than he was able to allow her, as well as a change to the seaside in the summer heat. The first spare money he had should go towards one or the other. He loved to give Polly pleasure, never was such a contented little soul as she. And well for him that it was so. To have had a complaining, even an impatient wife at his side just now, would have been unbearable. 
but Polly did not know what impatience meant. Her sunny temper, her fixed resolve to make the best of everything, was not to be shaken. Well, comforts galore should be hers some day, he hoped. The practice was shaping satisfactorily. His attendance at Dandaloo had proved a key to many doors. Folks of the Glendinnings and Urquhart's standing could make a reputation or mar it as they chose. It had got abroad, he knew, that at whatever hour of the day or night he was sent for, he could be relied on to be sober, and that, unfortunately, was not always the case with some of his colleagues. In addition, his fellow practitioners showed signs of waking up to his existence. He had been called in lately to a couple of consultations, and the doyen of the profession at Ballarat, old Munce himself, had praised his handling of a difficult case of version. The distance is to be covered— that's what made the work stiff, and he could not afford to neglect a single summons, no matter where it led him. Still, he would not have grumbled, had only the money not been so hard to get in. But the fifty thousand-odd souls on Ballarat formed, even yet, anything but a stable population. A patient you attended one day might be gone the next, and gone where no bill could reach him. Or he had been sold off at a public auction, or his wooden shanty had gone up in a flare— Hardly a night passed without a fire somewhere. In these, and like accidents, the unfortunate doctor might whistle for his fee. It seldom happened nowadays that he was paid in cash. Money was growing as scarce here as anywhere else. Sometimes, it was true, he might have pocketed his fee on the spot had he cared to ask for it, but the presenting of his palm professionally was a gesture that was denied him, and this standoffishness drove from people's minds the thought that he might be in actual need of money. Afterwards he sat at home and racked his brains how to pay butcher and grocer. Others in the fraternity were by no means so nice. He knew of some who would not stir a yard unless their fee was planked down before them. Old stagers these, who at one time had been badly bitten, and were now grown cynically distrustful, or tired. And indeed, who could blame a man for hesitating of a pitch-dark night in the winter rains, or on a blazing summer day, whether or no he should set out on a twenty-mile ride, for which he might never see the ghost of remuneration. Reflecting thus, Mahony caught at a couple of hard, spicy grey-green leaves to chew as he went. The gums, on which the old bark hung in ribbons, were in flower by now, and bore feathery yellow blossoms side by side with nutty capsules. His horse had been ambling forward unpressed. Now it laid its ears flat, and a minute later its master's slower senses caught at the clop-clop of a second set of hooves, the noise of wheels. Mahony had reached a place where two roads joined, and saw a covered buggy approaching. He drew rein and waited. The occupant of the vehicle had wound the reins around the empty lamp-bracket, and left it to the sagacity of his horse to keep the familiar track, while he dozed head on breast in the corner. The animal halted of itself on coming up with its fellow, and Archdeacon Long opened his eyes. "'Ah, good day to you, doctor. Yes, as you see, enjoying a little nap. I was out early.' He got down from the buggy, and with bent knees and his hands in his pockets, stretched the creased cloth of his trousers where this had cut into his flesh. He was a big, brawny, handsome man, with a massive nose, a cloven chin, and the most companionable smile in the world. As he stood, he touched here a strap, there a buckle on the harness of his chestnut, a well-known trotter, with which he often made a match, and affectionately clapped the neck of Mahony's bay. He could not keep his hands off a horse. By choice he was his own stableman, and in earlier life had been a daredevil rider. Now increasing weight led him to prefer buggy to saddle, but his recklessness had not diminished. 
With the reins in his left hand, he would run his light two-wheeled trap up any wooded boulder-strewn hill and down the other side, just as in his harem-scarum days he had set it at felled trees, and if rumour spoke true, wire fences. Mahony admired the splendid vitality of the man, as well as the indestructible optimism that bore him triumphantly through all the hardships of a colonial ministry. No sickbed was too remote for long, no sinner sunk too low to be helped to his feet. The leprous Chinaman doomed to an unending isolation, the drunken Paddy, the degraded white woman, each came in for a share of his benevolence. He spent the greater part of his life visiting the outcasts and outposts, beating up the unbaptized, the unconfirmed, the unwed. But his church did not suffer. He had always some fresh scheme for this on hand. Either he was getting up a tea-meeting to raise money for an organ, or a series of penny-readings towards funds for a chancel, or he was training with his choir for a sacred concert. There was a boyish streak in him, too. He would enter into the joys of the annual Sunday-school picnic with a zest equal to the children's own, leading the way in shirt-sleeves at leapfrog and obstacle-race. In doctrine he struck a happy mean between low-church practices and ritualism, preaching short-spirited sermons to which even languid Christians could listen without tedium, and on a weekday evening he would take a hand at a rubber of whist or a carte, and not for love, or play a sound game of chess. A man, too, who, refusing to be bound by the letter of the thirty-nine articles, extended his charity even to persons of the popish faith. In short, he was one of the few to whom Mahony could speak of his own haphazard efforts at criticising the Pentateuch. The archdeacon was wont to respond with his genial smile. "'Ah, it's all very well for you, doctor. You're a freelance. I'm constrained by my cloth.' "'And, frankly, for the rest of us, that kind of thing's too—well, too disturbing, especially when we have nothing better to put in its place.' Doctor and Parson, the latter considerably over six feet, made Mahony, who was tall enough, look short and doubly slender, walked side by side for nearly a mile, flitting from topic to topic. The rivalry that prevailed between Ballarat's east and west, the seditious uprising in India, where both had relatives, the recent rains, the prospects for grazing— the last theme brought them round to Dandaloo and its unhappy owner. The archdeacon expressed the outsider's surprise at the strength of Glendinning's constitution, and the lively popular sympathy that was felt for his wife. "'One's heart aches for the poor little lady, struggling to bear up as though nothing were the matter. Between ourselves, doctor,' and Mr. Long took off his straw hat to let the air play around his head, "'between ourselves it's a thousand pities he doesn't just pop off the hooks in one of his bouts, or that some of you medical gentlemen don't use your knowledge to help things on.' He let out his great hearty laugh as he spoke, and his companion's involuntary stiffening went unnoticed. But on Mahony voicing his attitude with, "'And his immortal soul, sir? Isn't it the Church's duty to hope for a miracle? Just as it is ours to keep the vital spark going?' He made haste to take the edge off his words. "'Now, now, doctor, only my fun. Our duty is, I trust, plain to us both?' It was even easier to soothe than to ruffle Mahony. "'Remember me very kindly to Mrs. Long, will you?' he said, as the archdeacon prepared to climb into his buggy. "'But tell her, too, I owe her a grudge just now. My wife's so lost in flannel and brown holland that I can't get a word out of her. And mine doesn't know where she'd be with this bazaar if it weren't for Mrs. Mahony.' Long was husband to a dot of a woman, who, having borne him half a dozen children of his own feature and build, now worked as parish clerk and district visitor rolled in one, 
driving about in sunbonnet and gardening gloves behind a pair of cream ponies, tiny, sharp-featured, resolute, with little of her husband's large tolerance, but an energy that outdid his own, and made her an object of both fear and respect. "'And that reminds me, over at the crossroads by Spring Hill I met your young brother-in-law, and he told me, if I ran across you, to ask you to hurry home. Your wife has some surprise or other in store for you. No, nothing unpleasant. Rather the reverse, I believe, but I wasn't to say more. Well, good day, doctor, good day to you.' Mahony smiled, nodded, and went on his way. Polly's surprises were usually simple and transparent things. Someone would have made them a present of a sucking-pig or a bush-turkey, and Polly, knowing his relish for a savoury morsel, did not wish it to be overdone. She had sent similar chance-calls out after him before now. When, having seen his horse rubbed down, he reached home, he found her on the doorstep watching for him. She was flushed, and her eyes had those peculiar highlights in them which led him jokingly to exhort her to caution, lest the sparks should set the house on fire. "'Well, what is it, Pussy?' he inquired, as he laid his bag down and hung up his wide-awake. "'What's my little surprise-monger got up her sleeve to-day? Oh, good Lord, Polly, I'm tired.' Polly was smiling roguishly. "'Aren't you going into the surgery, Richard?' she asked, seeing him heading for the dining-room. "'Aha! So that's it,' said he, and obediently turned the handle. Polly had on occasion taken advantage of his absence to introduce some new comfort or decoration in his room. The blind had been let down. He was still blinking in the half-dark, when a figure sprang out from behind the door, barging heavily against him, and a loud voice shouted, "'Bow, you old beef-brains! Bow to a goose!' Displeased at such horseplay, Mahony stepped sharply back. His first thought was of Ned having unexpectedly returned from Mount Ararat. Then, recognising the voice, he exclaimed incredulously, "'You, Dicky Bird, you?' "'Dick, old man, I say, Dick. Yes, it's me right enough, and not my ghost, the old bad egg come back to roost.' The blind was raised, and the friends who had last met in the dingy bush hut on the night of the stockade stood face to face. And now ensued a babble of greeting, a quick fire of question and answer, the two voices going in and out and round each other singly and together like the voices in a duet. Tears rose to Polly's eyes as she listened. It made her heart glow to see Richard so glad. But when, forgetting her presence, Purdy cried, "'And I must confess, Dick, I took a kiss from Mrs. Polly. Gad, old man, how she's come on!' Polly hastily retired to the kitchen. At table the same high spirits prevailed. It did not often happen that Richard was brought out of his shell like this, thought Polly gratefully, and heaped her visitor's plate to the brim. His first hunger stilled, Purdy fell to giving a slapdash account of his experiences. He kept to no orderly sequence, but threw them out just as they occurred to him. A rub with bushrangers in the Black Forest, his adventures as a long-distance drover in the Mildura, the trials of a week he had spent in a boiling-down establishment on the Murray— where the stink was so foul, you two, that I vomited like a dog every day. Under the force of this odyssey, husband and wife gradually dropped into silence, which they broke only by single words of astonishment and sympathy, while the child Trotty spooned in her pudding without seeing it, her round, solemn eyes fixed unblinkingly on this new uncle, who was like a wonderful story-book come alive. In Marnie's feelings for Purdy at this moment there was none of the old intolerant superiority— he had been dependent for so long on a mere surface acquaintance with his fellows, that he now felt to the full how precious the tie was that bound him to Purdy. 
Here came one for whom he was not alone the reserved, struggling practitioner, the rather moody man advancing to middle age, but also the dick of his boyhood and early youth. He had often imagined the satisfaction it would be to confide his troubles to Purdy. Compared, however, with the hardships the latter had undergone, these seemed of small importance, and dinner passed without any allusion to his own affairs. And now the chances of his speaking out were slight— he could have been entirely frank only under the first stimulus of meeting. Even when they rose from the table, Purdy continued to hold the stage, for he had turned up with hardly a shirt to his back, and had to be rigged out afresh from Mahony's wardrobe. It was decided that he should remain their guest in the meantime, also that Mahony should call on his behalf on the Commissioner of Police, and put in a good word for him, for Purdy had come back with the idea of seeking a job in the Ballarat Mounted Force. When Mahony could no longer put off starting on his afternoon round, Purdy went with him to the livery-barn, limping briskly at his side. On the way he exclaimed aloud at the marvellous changes that had taken place since he was last in the township. There were half a dozen gas-lamps in Sturt Street by this time, the gas being distilled from a mixture of oil and gum-leaves. "'One wouldn't credit it if one didn't see it with one's own peepers.' he cried, repeatedly bringing up short before the plate-glass windows of the shops, the many handsome verandahed hotels, the granite front of Christchurch. "'And from what I hear, Dick, now companies have jumped the claims and are deep-sinking in earnest, fortunes'll be made like one o'clock.' But on getting home again he sat down in front of Polly and said, with a business-like air, "'And now tell me all about old Dick. You know, Paul, he's such an odd fish.' If he himself doesn't offer to uncork, somehow one just can't pump him. And I want to know everything that concerns him, from A to Z. Polly could not hold out against this affectionate curiosity. Entrenching her needle in its stuff, she put her work away and complied. And soon to her own satisfaction. For the first time in her married life she was led to discuss her husband's ways and actions with another, and to her amazement she found that it was easier to talk to Purdy about Richard than to Richard himself. Purdy and she saw things in the same light. No rigmarole of explanation was necessary. Now with Richard it was not so. In conversation with him one constantly felt that he was not speaking out, or, to put it more plainly, that he was going on meantime with his own very different thoughts and behind what he did say there was sure to lurk some imaginary scruple, some rather far-fetched delicacy of feeling which it was hard to get at, and harder still to understand. End of Part 3, Chapter 6